for me, this doesn't need to be anything but authentic. And, and that's where I think the greatest value comes from, is uh, an explosion of authenticity. Hello, friends, brothers, sisters, human beings, transhuman beings, superhuman beings, if you're into that kind of thing. My name is Marco Morelli, and this is Infinite Conversations, a new podcast that I've created, wanted to do for a long time, something like this. Of course, this uh, remains to be determined. I don't know exactly what I'm doing, but I have an intuition, uh, an instinct that I'm acting on, and I'm curious to see where it goes. My first guest is Mark Binet. Mark is an actor, a writer, a poet. He is also a dear friend of mine. I've known him for going on 15 years. I met Mark when we were both volunteers with a nonprofit organization called um, IICD, the Institute for International Cooperation and Development. I went to Nicaragua and Mark went to India and uh, did volunteer work there. And then we met uh, at the campus of this nonprofit in Williamstown, Massachusetts. It's a beautiful place and some really beautiful people that I got to know. And when we met, it was an explosion. It was hilarious. I had never met somebody who was, on the one hand, so different than me, and yet, on the other, such a profound mirror. Even our names are the same, essentially. Mark, Marco, the god of war, Mars. And so we developed a friendship, and in 2002, lived together in a tiny apartment in Brooklyn, Park Slope, New York. We were writing poetry, meditating, working service jobs, and also avidly reading the books of the philosopher Ken Wilber, who around that time had started his own nonprofit called II, Integral Institute. And we both moved to Boulder, Colorado to be a part of that. So we went from IICD to Park Slope to II, and then Mark got really into Argentine tango and uh, left Boulder, went to Argentina. I stayed on working with Integral Institute for another few years. I left in 2007 and started a new phase in my life. I got married. We bought a house with a mortgage. We adopted a dog. We got another dog. We had a baby, another baby. The full catastrophe. Meanwhile, Mark had gone back to New York, where he continued writing, acting. Uh, he supported himself doing waitering work. Uh, I tell you all this because it is relevant to our conversation. When I emailed Mark, I included a link to an essay that I was working on, a first draft for an essay to be titled, Does an Artist Need a Business Plan? And Mark reacted vehemently to this essay. He tore it apart. It was beautiful. And I replied with uh, appropriate expressions of gratitude and uh, ecstasy. And then we talked for a couple of hours, uh, recorded it back in March of 2015. 
and I've excerpted about 30 minutes or so of that conversation for episode one. One, qu- I got a question for you, but I, you know, so yeah, you give that pre- you give that prelude, which is really great. At the same time, I'm very wary of of formatting things for people to make it more consumer friendly. Like that's actually a motif that I want to discuss, a theme that I want to discuss that we'll get to about you know artists and how there's a pressure to make things more uh, consumable, if that's a word. And in this conversation, I feel like paradoxically to get the most depth and most treasure, it's to is to speak in such a way that it's not going to be consumed because then we are con- just can riff consideration for product. And then of course you can edit it however you like. I don't, I don't want to uh, control anything. What you receive from this conversation, of course, is the value of the conversation itself, but it's also something you can put online. And for me, it helps develop my consciousness as an artist because it's such a wonderful thing to speak with you about this because we can go there and we can fly at those impossible altitudes. So it's helping enrich me and, and, and make my consciousness more multidimensional because of the, you know, the osmosis and the flow between us allows me to go there. Um, but I'm not so much concerned about making it presentable. I don't even give a fuck about that. I know you do, but um, what's very important to me is that I don't want to feel the constraint of making a consumer-friendly product. Yeah. Well, maybe and I know I... you may feel that on, in the back of your head somewhere, but are you willing to let me just kind of say what I need to say? I mean, I'm not going to yeah, be I'll... Yeah, like I... Charles Manson over here saying the weirdest shit known to man, but you know what I'm saying. Well, yeah, I mean, that's part of... That's part of the creative tension in our conversation. And it's that on the one hand, I want to make real art. I want this conversation to be real art. I want my larger project, my work as a writer, to be real art. On the other hand, I am very aware of the larger economic market and political dynamics in which I'm creating this art and we are creating this art. And I wish you were recording this right now. Actually. I am. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is very, whatever you need it to be. You can put pre- prelude to this and explain how it's not even really our formal conversation. And yet it's how we talk, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. And so, but I want to let you know a couple of uh, things just up front because, you know, I, take our conversations seriously. I, I, I let them, as I let any real conversations, real relationships that I have, I practice and I'm practicing letting them change me, uh, letting them shape uh, my own intentions, my own being in the world. So even with respect to this project, this podcast, Infinite Conversations, which is a part of this larger project called A Theory of Everybody, even here, our conversation may change the nature of the pro- project and, in fact, already has. For example, one of the things I've been thinking a lot more seriously about, whereas it was a question I kind of bracketed for later, but I'm taking it a lot more seriously right now, is the question, do I need to make this a nonprofit? Do I need to formally kind of institutionalize some, uh, some position that's outside of the 
consumerist modality. Now, just because something is, quote, not for profit doesn't mean that it's outside of the consumerist modality necessarily. And, 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 you know, just because something is for profit doesn't mean it's an expression of a, uh, you know, rapacious capitalism. So I, I want to start with a quote. And this quote comes from an author who I have a lot of uh, affection and respect for and whose work I'm actively appreciating. It's Don DeLillo, and this quote comes from a 2005 interview. And the quote is this. Writers must oppose systems. It's important to write against power, corporations, the state, and the whole system of consumption and of debilitating entertainments. I think writers, by nature, must oppose things, oppose whatever power tries to impose on us. Well, you know, there's so many ways to look at this predicament and this challenge and this condition of an artist as an artist, but also an artist in society. And um, the, the irony, there's so many ironies, but one of them that comes to mind is that Don DeLillo is a famous writer, and you can find his books on any shelf. You can find him in thrift stores, etc. He's all over the place. And the question arises for me, does he become the very system that he advocates opposing? And that is, that is a real quandary for any artist who wants to get his or her voice out there. Do they essentially eventually become the system that they previously had opposed? And on one hand, I, I don't trust DeLillo when he says that. On the other hand, I completely trust him. So there's a little bit of a double consciousness there. Well, uh, it's a strong quote. Yeah. Uh, it's essentially what he's saying, I think, is writers must have a strong moral or ethical uh, commitment which right. expresses itself through their writing. But what you're saying is that on the one hand, there's your writing, there are your stories, your poems, your music, whatever it may be that you're producing. Uh, but when you produce something, it becomes, by virtue of being produced in our culture, society, and civilization, it becomes a consumer product. And so you become a producer of a consumer product. Uh, you become implicated in a money system, a political system, a history, etc., etc. And the way that you relate to, uh, to that larger context can't be separated uh, ultimately from, from your art, I don't think, uh, although they are distinct. Yeah, I keep saying that it's, it's like you become colonized. Um, so that you might have a contrarian, even antinomian voice, and you publish it, and that generates some response, maybe you become popular, and then you slowly but surely become appropriated or colonized. Um, by larger forces that want to make a profit off of your words or your art, whatever the case happens to be. And so let's say that you're an artist like Jonathan Franzen, who is very critical of 
system, to speak broadly. And then Oprah knocks on his door and says, I want you to be on my show. <laughs> and then he's in a little bit of a, a, a quandary there because he's like, ooh, I want millions of people to know my work, my critical perspective on the excesses and decadence of society. And yet I'm going on Oprah and that's how I'm going to get my millions of viewers. And Oprah is the very emblem of that system or that society that I oppose. So I don't know if that's a paradox per se. I don't know that I necessarily believe in paradox actually, but it is a, a real uh, potential contradiction in one's consciousness as an artist. Uh, I've been tossing around in my head as a kind of follow-up. Is a twist on this media theorist, Douglas Rushkoff, uh, which is program or be programmed. He wrote a book called Program <laughs> or Be Programmed. And his, his thesis is that the way that our world is structured is programmatic. It's a programmed one. And uh, yeah. it has been intended, uh, coded, you might say, uh, by those who know how to intend and code the system. And, you know, he's kind of partly talking about actual code, you know, computer code. But I think that he's also talking about the programming of our society, the programming of our economy, the programming of our political system, and so on. Uh, And so if we apply that same uh, dictum to the artist, right, programmer be programmed, and, and we think about this question of political engagement or a business kind of engagement. Here's, here's a kind of a potential thesis or a hypothesis that I want to put forward, is that if you're an artist who doesn't have a business plan or who doesn't have a, polit- a, a political clarity or even a political plan, you know, as to what you're actually doing with your art, then you are going to be part of somebody else's plan. You're going to be part of somebody else's uh, ideology or, you know, system of power. Well, when you were saying program or be programmed, as a quote from Rushkoff, it occurred to me, I think it's more, at least to my sensibilities, program and be programmed. Like, and there's a discrepancy, or I don't know if discrepancy is the right word, but um, someone could argue that most American citizens, as we're Americans, let's speak about what we kind of know, are more of them are mostly programmed and aren't necessarily programmers. But you can be both, and I would think that the great, greatest thinkers and artists are both, because we're always taking in each other's code and each other's program. And then if that's all we do, then we're the ones who are just being programmed by all this influx. Um, but then there are people who just kind of flip the switch and switch and turn it around and they start to emit their own code. They emit their own program and they become, they've recycled and metabolized program that's incoming. And then they have their outgoing, uh, program that will then of course affect others, uh, and become programmed for others. And so if we're artists, we do have to respect the, the code that's coming into us, the program that's coming into us, because that's what we're putting out into others. So if we don't respect code that's coming into us, how can we respect the fact that we're putting codes into others? We're constantly doing this. Um, 
and I do think the best thinkers and artists, etc., have a dynamic equilibrium of both. As far as um, pro, uh, business programs, for example, or political agendas, um, I think that's a more those are more specific examples of what we're talking about. The business program that we've been talking about, or you've been talking about, and that I've slightly resisted, is is I think that's where it's at in a way, because the artist wants to have traction in society if they have a, a motive to improve society, and if they're going to have traction, that means they need to be they need to have docs and interfaces with society, and a business plan is a huge place to do that. Because your livelihood is dependent upon society as an artist, if that's what you want to do. And at the same time, you can become appropriated by the tastes of an artist that is perhaps less informed, less educated, less awake, less open-hearted, less open-minded. They're telling you what they want, or you know unconsciously what they want. And you're trying to pay a mortgage, and so, rather than being a renegade or a maverick or a rogue that questions and elevates and overturns on a, on a kind of unconscious level, you're like, I need to somehow keep the money flowing in my direction, and I can't upset these people too much. And yet the artist is uniquely positioned to upset people, to get them to think, to awaken them. But how can the artist really do that if he needs money from these people to pay the mortgage? And that's a real koan. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I'm an artist. I consider myself an artist. I'm, I'm stepping into uh, an identity as an artist. Uh, and, uh, and I'm inquiring, what does it mean to be an artist? At the same time, I'm a person. I'm a human being. I have economic needs, I have relationship needs, I have belonging needs, even, you know, if we were to look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I have all those needs. And if I ignore any of those needs, I will suffer for them because they're not optional. So I need to find a way to fulfill my needs. And part of, I think, what seems to be happening here part of the situation of the artist in general but also me in particular perhaps you in particular is that our self-actualization and self-realization needs again to reference Maslow uh, can conflict with our belonging and our survival needs to a certain in a certain extent if you don't if you can't fulfill the lower level needs it will make the realization of your higher level needs maybe not impossible but certainly harder i mean there there there's pro- there is a, probably an argument that can say that the struggle uh the experience of deprivation the experience of injustice <laughs> the experience of not belonging the experience of alienation yeah. all of those experiences that that we know uh can fuel our art. But I would say that that presupposes a certain level of affluence and education to be thus affected, and that you've already got some major needs taken care of if you could be so like 
uh, barnstormed and whiplashed by the injustice of the world and, you know, rearrange your life to just take that on no matter how deprived you might feel in that solitary lone wolf vocation. You know, Vincent Van Gogh comes to mind. Like, you see a great movie like Vincent and Theo, and this guy is just so beyond the pale, way out beyond the margins. And he's just taking on all these demons and creating this phenomenal art. And yet there's already, you could argue that he is taking care of the basic needs or he couldn't have jumped off a cliff like that. Whereas if somebody was born into poverty uh, and never had the education and never had any of the training that, for example, Van Gogh had, they wouldn't even be able to tackle these uh, major social issues that we're talking about or tackle the demons that Van Gogh had on his plate, etc. Nietzsche comes to mind uh, as well. Uh, uh, we're mutual uh, readers of Nietzsche. We connected uh, partly over Frederick Nietzsche in our early 20s, our hyper-masculine early 20s. And, um, you know, Nietzsche wrote this incredible philosophy, this incredible thinking, but he was also a professor. He had... Uh, you know, he had some kind of a stipend or some kind of a pension or something like that. He was, he was, you know, not that he was wealthy or necessarily that well off, but he was taken care of in a certain way. And that's partly what allowed him to articulate this uh, radical view of the uh, role of the artist in society, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I thought about this issue of the business plan for the artist from multiple angles. And what comes back to me is life and death, nothing to lose, nothing to gain. And one of the dangers of a business plan for an artist is that it's all oriented toward making the artist comfortable. You've got all your ducks in a row. For me, the greatest art comes from a life and death struggle. For the artist needs to figure out what is the matter of life and death. Because if it's more just kind of posh, rearranging the furniture, well, that's cool. That's very postmodern, but it's not vital and it's not important. It's not significant. What is life and death? Because that's what is going to make me listen as an audience, as a reader. I want to know what gets your balls in a wad, you know? I want to know what scares you or what challenges you or puts you toward the edge because that's what's going to rivet me. And then, okay, so we put that to the side. And then the second matter for consideration is nothing to gain and nothing to lose. And that's part of the story I wanted to read to you. We don't have to do that now, but... If we have a business plan and if we're trying to make everything very comfortable for ourselves, are we going to, as artists, really feel that life and death, which brings about great originality and authenticity? I think there can be a leap of faith, which is, I will be so authentic, I will take a leap of faith that someone will want to pay me money for how original I am. But that is not about me making myself so comfortable with my business plan. It's about me saying I'm a 100% artist, 100% authentic, 100% original, and I'm just going to do what I need to do. 
full stop. And shit, it would be great to make a living at this, so I'll put it online and I'll publish my books. But if that doesn't happen, that doesn't compromise my life and death struggle. So then the next question is for someone who's very educated in an affluent society who's contemplating these questions as the artist of the artist in society. What is of life and death struggle for someone who's in that position? And I think that's where our vocation and passion as mystics come into play. Because in, some, in so many respects, we've got our bases covered and we've got all our basic needs taken care of. We're now on the self-actualization wing of the pyramid if you want to use Maslow's hierarchy. What is life and death for us? Because if we're not creating life and death art, then what are we doing? And um, if, so for, for me, a life and death matter, for example, is the new Jim Crow, where I have black brothers and sisters by the millions being cycled through the criminal justice system in the United States of America, and it's a, of a proportion of cultural genocide. And, in, and that is the legacy of white supremacy in the United States going back to the early 1600s, 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, and now we have this thing called the new Jim Crow. And that is a life and death matter. And that's what makes my blood boil. There are other life and death matters. And that's where activism comes in. Because if you've got all your needs taken care of, then you can start being really concerned for those who don't have their needs taken care of. All of our brothers rotting in a jail cell. Okay? But if I'm so concerned about making my life posh with my business plan and I become very comfortable, do I then want to destabilize that by going life and death and challenging the system that creates the new Jim Crow? I'm going to be very wary of what I challenge. Because I've got two kids to feed. I've got a car in the yard. You know, I'm going to graduate school in my creative writing program. Then, let me complicate matters further by saying nothing to gain and nothing to lose. Which is you're sitting down and you're saying, you know what? I really don't give a fuck if people like this. I am an artist down to the very molecule and I just have to express. I wrote a solo show and I worked with my, uh, flew out to India to work with my director on it. And we kind of mutually determined that it was not stageable. <laughs> but I, and that was a real difficult situation for me. And uh, we handled it both gracefully. But what I've since learned in the many months that have followed is that, well, I have to stage it anyways. It's not something you're going to find on Off-Broadway or Broadway. It is a radical tour de force. It is ferocious. It's eight characters. It spans a thousand years. There's God and goddess in it. I play a, a black beggar woman in her 50s who is reenacting her slavery, uh, the, the, the slavery experienced by her ancestors. And there's also a character who's modeled on Ray Kurtzwill, um, who's an advocate of singularity theory. It's all over the map. And it is life and death. For me, especially as a human being concerned with activist issues, but even more so as an artist who would put that shit up on a stage in front of people. That's life and death because people can be like, this is a pile of crap. I'm leaving. And I would, maybe I wouldn't even put it on the stage because I know people would think it's a pile of crap. And then nothing to gain, nothing to lose. It's just like, you know what? Whatever happens, happens. I got to move forward. So... 
do you really think that someone who's dedicated to making the, a business plan and making their life as an artist nice and posh and comfortable is going to take the risks necessary to actually make a difference and awaken people? Thank you, Mark. And thanks to Chris Zabriskie, who composed the music you hear behind me. It's from an album titled Direct to Video, as was the opening music. And I downloaded the tracks from the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org, where Chris makes his music available under Creative Commons license, which allows people like me to not only enjoy and appreciate it, but also to use it in projects like this. You can learn more about Chris at chriszabriskie.com. Z-A-B-R-I-S-K-I-E is how you spell Zabriskie. It's July 2015 as I record this, and I just saw Mark a few weeks ago, actually, in New York. I was on the East Coast visiting my family, and we met up, Mark, his girlfriend, me, my wife, and my two daughters, in Central Park, and had a picnic, and kept talking. Mark was a few days from leaving the country. He and his girlfriend have just moved to Jerusalem, where she has taken a position with UNICEF, and Mark is working on his next solo show. So I wish them much luck and love in their endeavors and their life. I am just about on my way out the door. I'm heading off on another road trip, this time to the West Coast, where I'll be attending the Integral Theory Conference at Sonoma State University uh, that's put on by Meta Integral. So I'm looking forward to that and also looking forward to meeting up with friends, old and new. I'm going to be camping and I'm going to be staying in other places and I'm going to have time to write and to continue articulating the vision for this project, a theory of everybody which I'm describing as a platform for radical, integral discourse. And this podcast is one part of that. Uh, There is also a journal called Integral Journal and a book club called Lit Geeks. And you can learn more about the project as a whole, as well as the components of it, at theoryofeverybody.com. And I'm looking for collaborators, co-creators, fellow writers, artists, conversationalists, readers, listeners, and supporters who want to help make this project happen, and who believe, as I do, or suspect at least, as I do, the hypothesis that it should be possible to do creative, intellectual, and spiritual work outside of the reductive transactional logics, which I believe have come to dominate our culture. So that's what I'm up to here, and if this interests you, please feel free to be in touch. You can also sign up for future episodes of the podcast at infiniteconversations.fm. Thank you for listening.